This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gregory Scott about his new book, Building the Buddhist Revival, Reconstructing Monasteries in Modern China, published by the Oxford University Press in 2020. Dr. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Dagena. Thanks very much for having me. Great. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies and specifically in Buddhism in modern China. Uh, certainly. So I got into East Asian studies initially through the language. So I grew up uh, in Toronto, Canada. Um, I believe you did your undergraduate and part of your master's work at University of Toronto. I did, yeah. Yeah. So I grew up uh, just outside of Toronto and sometimes I would go into the city and I would go to Chinatown. And I'd walk down the streets and I would see the signs with the enormous Chinese characters on them. And I was just, I was fascinated. I looked at these signs and I saw this language and I thought, I don't know what it says, but I want to know what it says. So when I started my um, undergraduate degree, I was in East Asian studies at York University, um, just kind of on the edge of, of, of Toronto proper. And I decided to study Mandarin Chinese and I continued doing Chinese studies uh, since then. So I ended up at the University of Toronto for my master's, at Columbia for my PhD, and along the way, um, I started to narrow and focus more and more on studying not just East Asia, but also China, specifically modern Chinese history, and then more specifically religion uh, and Buddhism as well. But when I got started, when I was an undergrad, I didn't have any intention to study religion per se. I was just doing area studies, learning the language and learning about the background of the region. It was only later on that I really got this intense interest in, in religion and in Buddhism more specifically. Oh, Interesting. I actually grew up in Toronto too, and and I did my BA and master's there. So, yes, we have a lot to uh, talk about about that specifically. Um, Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, And now, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write um, your monograph, Building the Buddhist Revival? Sure. So, in my last uh, year of my PhD, when I was just finishing up the write up for my dissertation, um, my wife had already been going to study at the University of Edinburgh. And the year before that, I had been in Taiwan doing library and archive research. So I ended up in Edinburgh during my last year of my PhD. I was applying to all kinds of jobs, and I applied for a job at the University of Edinburgh, a lecture job, which is kind of like like an assistant professorship. And I didn't get it, but I did get accepted to a postgraduate institute there, the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities, uh, which is a wonderful place. And I got a one-year postdoc there. And it was while I was there in the kind of the new job cycle, reapplying for, for all kinds of different jobs and postdocs and research positions that I came across the, uh, the Leverhulme Trust in the UK and their early career fellowship. 
And one of the requirements that they have, which a lot of other projects don't, is that the research project that you propose can't be the same as the one that you did for your PhD. So I had just completed my PhD dissertation on print culture and publishing among uh, Buddhists in modern China. I had to come up with a new project. I'd already been uh, interested in monasteries, material culture, and sacred spaces. So I thought it was a natural next step to uh, propose a project looking at the history of monasteries. And luckily, it was accepted. So that was the next three years of my research work is, is working on that project. Um, I already had um, kind of a good, a good sense or a good, uh, a good sense in my own mind as to why it should be done and the, the outlines of my research work. But I didn't know until I actually got stuck into it, uh, the sheer wealth of material that I would find on the topic. And I, I ended up being really lucky that there was so much to write about um, during, uh, during this time period. And I think it ended up being a fairly successful uh, project. And it means that my, uh, this monograph, so this book is my first monograph, and it's not actually based on my PhD dissertation or my PhD research. It was a postdoc, a postdoc uh, doctoral project for me. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, like, like we'll, we'll definitely get to read um, in your actual monograph. Um, it's, it's really a wealth of knowledge and it's really comprehensive. Um, so I guess we can go into the book itself. Um, it's really interesting that you point out in the introduction of the monograph that Buddhist monasteries in China are neither exclusively Buddhist nor exclusively a monastery. Um, you also point out that according to the architect um, Johann Prepp-Mahler, who studied Chinese Buddhist monasteries extensively um, in the early 20th century, that no single monastery was constructed exactly according to an ideal model as each had been adapted to its setting and context in different ways. So I'm quoting um, um, Pritmuller's quote here. So I was wondering right. if we can start our, our conversation with a question. So what is a Buddhist monastery uh, in the Chinese context, and how do you conceptualize and approach Buddhist monasteries in China in, in this book particularly? Sure. So there's, there's really two scholars that um, are kind of the pillars upon which the, the book is built. Uh, the first, of course, is Holmes Welch, uh, about whom we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little later. But Welch was a, a scholar of Chinese Buddhism more generally. He wrote some of the first foundational research monographs on the topic in the late 60s and early 1970s. Uh, Prip Muller was a Danish architect who was working in the 1930s. And he has this, uh, this one monograph on Chinese Buddhist monasteries. Enormous. It's not only long, but it's just it's a very large book as well. Um, I initially read it in the East Asian Library at Columbia, and it has to be in the oversized section because you open it up and he has these enormous uh, photographs, drawings, and archi architectural drawings of, mo of monasteries. He really took the, the architecture and the history of these sites very seriously. So that was one of the big uh, sort of inspirational reasons why I, I initially designed and got into this project. So Prip Muller approaches a Buddhist monastery as what he calls a frame for religious life. So it's a material frame within which religious stuff can happen. And I think a Buddhist monastery in the Chinese context, one layer or one role that it plays is, is of course, this. It is the physical infrastructure for religious ritual, practice, meditation, teaching, all kinds of religious stuff to go on within that space. Now, that's one important role that it plays. But monasteries, of course, are also other types of places. They're not just religious places, but they're also they have a political aspect to them, an economic aspect, historical, cultural. Oftentimes, they are one of the most visible uh, historic landmarks. Uh, in a locality, um, even if the actual monastery has been rebuilt several times, there's still this sense that the history of the place goes back centuries or sometimes sometimes millennia. And thus, it, it acts as a kind of a, um, a physical, a concrete anchor 
for the locality to its past and uh, local histories, even if the compilers of these sorts of local gazetteers and other historical documents, even if the compilers are relatively hostile towards uh, Buddhism and Taoism, they'll, they'll normally include discussions about the history of monasteries and temples because oftentimes these histories are very long and thus they're an important part of the histories of, of the locality um, above and beyond their kind of the, the religious role that they play in, in the locality as well. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. Um, and the title of the book, uh, Building the Buddhist Revival, seems to be referring to Holmes Welch's classic, like you just mentioned, right? Uh, the Buddhist Revival in China, originally published in 1968 by the Harvard University Press. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the Buddhist revival that your book is referring to? Is it similar or different to the conceptual frameworks uh, provided by Welch? Sure. So the Buddhist revival in China, as described in Holmes Welch's uh, book, originally in 1968, but of course, since its publication, uh, a lot of other scholars, both specialists of modern Chinese Buddhism and others who are just interested in Buddhism or China more generally, they've all taken his title as a kind of a shorthand to describe what happened to Buddhism during this period. And the revival that he discusses in that monograph takes place from about the 1860s into the 1940s. And from his point of view, it's brought to an abrupt end by the revolution in 1949 and the, and the creation of the new, the new state, uh, the People's Republic of China. But it's also important to remember that Welch in his book, um, he doesn't see it as a revival because he has a very normative view of what Buddhism should be. He sees the changes and innovations that were taking place among, among Buddhists during this time as really being deviations from what he sees to be orthodox Buddhism. So even though he describes a lot of things and uses this term revival to refer to them, uh, if you read his entire monograph and read through the conclusion as well, he argues that they shouldn't be seen as a revival, that they were actually losing the way of what he sees as the orthodox, orthodox way um, of Buddhism. From my perspective, I don't want to make that kind of value judgment. I don't want to have a normative idea as to what Buddhism ought to be. And honestly, looking at the changes and innovations in modern China, you can see that uh, they're not only adapting to modern challenges and 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 the uh, the new pressures of modern times, but they're pulling upon very long-standing and well-established modes of operation for for Buddhists in the past. So I can give you one example. So one of the big innovations of the modern period for Chinese Buddhism was the production of periodicals, newspapers, magazines, other types of regularly published. Uh, printed material talking about Buddhism. They would uh, discuss scriptures, include essays. It would include news, you know, the latest news from the Buddhist wor uh, from the Buddhist world, both in China and abroad. This is kind of the content. And no Buddhist periodical had existed in China before 1912. But of course, Buddhists had been printing stuff for centuries. The earliest dated printed work in the world is is a copy of the Diamond Sutra. So Buddhists had already been involved in printing. It's not that much of a conceptual leap to see them moving from uh, purely scriptural printing or, or printing commentaries on scriptures, going toward printing magazines and newspapers and journals and other sorts of things that are discussing Buddhism, but aren't exactly scriptural texts or scriptural commentaries as well. So even though Welch looks at all of this stuff and says, no, it's a, it's, it's a deviation, it's, it's, it's losing the path, I look at it and see this is just another example of the kinds of innovations that have happened throughout Buddhism's history. And I'm not going to make a judgment as to whether it is or it is not authentic Buddhism. That's a thing for the believers. That's an issue for the believers themselves to, uh, to try to figure out and try to determine. But taking a look at the historical, uh, 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 taking a look from the historical aspect and taking a look at these traditions 
as, uh, as historical traditions, as traditions that exist in human history, I think that these changes are very much within the same mode um, as, as, as previous changes uh, that had already happened within Chinese Buddhism in times before that. So even though Welch's book, I mean, so many of us have been inspired by his work. Uh, a colleague and I put together a special seminar at the American Academy of Religion annual conference uh, over the past few years to celebrate and to revisit his work. At the same time, we are trying to move beyond his uh, his view, the limited, uh, rather limited number of sources that he had access to at the time, and um, and take a new look and a new perspective on what exactly this this revival entailed. Thank you, thank you. Um, and the book, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, is covering Buddhist monastery reconstructions um, in the period, specifically from 1866 to 1966. Um, what's the significance of bookending these dates in your book? So 1866 is a convenient place to start because it's just after the the uh, final suppression of the Taiping Rebellion. So the Taiping Rebellion or the Taiping War was uh, a conflict that happened in China from about 1850 to 1864. It destroyed tens of thousands of religious institutions in China, including Buddhist monasteries. So picking up the story in the immediate aftermath of this immensely destructive event is a convenient place to start because the type of the type of world of Buddhist monasteries and reconstructions that we see prior to this war is very different from that afterward. There had already been wars and destructions of Buddhist monasteries, um, even you know, even uh, suppressions of Buddhism led by the emperor in the past, but it had never been on quite the same scale as the Taiping War during the 1850s and early 1860s. So that's the kind of the why the book begins there. As to why it ends in 1966, I did initially only wanted to go up until 1949. Um, I hadn't had a lot of experience reading sources or reading reading materials from the early period of the PRC. Um, but my boss at the University of Edinburgh uh, encouraged me to try to tackle an entire century of history rather than stopping the story um, right at 1949. So I look at the first um, the first 17 years of the PRC, of course, the period between the found the founding of the state right up until the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution, when everything in the country starts to change uh, very quickly. And the first 17 years of the PRC are actually a period during which uh, religion within communist China is actually allowed to operate, perhaps not grow and flourish, but it's certainly allowed to continue operating within strictures, within uh, regulations, and under the watchful eye of the party. But at the same time, especially Buddhism had an important role to play uh, during uh, in state building, in in, in cultural diplo- uh, diplomacy during that time. So it actually worked out really well that I do take a look at what happened to Buddhist monasteries. And uh, during this period between 1949 and 1966, and ask the question as to why so many of them were actually reconstructed during a time when the PRC was uh, so preoccupied with just building the infrastructure of a modern state, increasing industrial output, increasing agricultural output. Why is it that the party devoted so much money and time and effort to rebuilding uh, monuments and institutions that were religious uh, in, in nature? So that's that's the reason why it begins in 1866, um, right after the end of an enormous conflagration, destruction of religious structures, and ends in 1966 on the eve of another period of widespread destruction of religious institutions uh, and religious structures in the PRC. Thank you. It's, it's very interesting. And, and chapter one of your book starts, um, I guess, with the first period in the century of, of Buddhist uh, monastery reconstruction. Um, and you here survey the damage brought by the Taiping War in 1866. 
um, to different uh, Buddhist monasteries and religious communities in modern China. Here, you introduced two cases of important monasteries that were almost completely destroyed in this war, uh, the Linggu Monastery and the Jiangtian Monastery um, in uh, central and south parts of China. Can you tell us about the fates of these two monasteries and what happened to them and their reconstructions after the traumas of the war? Sure. So Linggu Monastery and Jiangtian Monastery are the two real case studies that I look at in the first chapter of the book, uh, which starts in 1866 and runs right up until about 1898 or so. So this is kind of the first generation um, after the end of the Taiping War. And I look at Linggu and Jiangtian because they are examples that could not be more different from each other as to previously well-known and, and prominent Buddhist monasteries, almost in, almost in the same area of China. Uh, that their fates after the war were were very divergent. And it shows you the extremes to which different sorts of religious structures, uh, the extremes to which their, their, their fates and their outcomes could differ after the end of the war. So Linggu Monastery um, had been located just northeast of the city of Nanjing in the, in the, Zhong, in the Zhong Mountain Range uh, for, for centuries uh, before it was known as one of the, the three great monasteries of the Nanjing era. It was very well known, it was very prominent, but during the, the period of the Taiping War, as Nanjing was first attacked and then taken by the Taiping forces, Linggu Monastery finds itself right on the front lines of fighting. Most of its structures are very quickly destroyed. Um, there's actually uh, the, the abbot of the monastery at the time um, goes around throughout the battlefield, marking down and creating a record of the places and the names of the, of the soldiers who had fallen. Uh, because at the time, the fighting was so intense, it's not that every body of a fallen soldier could immediately be collected and be brought back uh, to, to be sent home to, uh, to his family. So this, um, the abbot of Linggu Monastery uh, goes around, tries to, make, tries to bury them where he can, and to make records so that afterwards the, the relatives can come, collect the remains, and give them a proper burial uh, uh, in, their, in, their, in their home county. So Buddhist, mon- uh, Buddhist monks and Buddhist monastics had always been kind of specialists in dealing with the dead. They were able to deal with the pollution and the danger of a dead body, of the event of a death, were able to intervene and to make sure that this, the, that the soul was well taken care of and, and would be going on to a rebirth or to a, or, or, or to a, a place in one of the, uh, the Buddhist heavens, that they would take care of it in some way. So during wartime, during this uh, horrible period when there's death all around, the monks of Linggu Monastery intervene and take care of the dead in a very, in a very direct and a very physical way. They, they try as best they can uh, to mark down the places where soldiers have fallen and their names and their identities. After the war is finished, uh, Linggu Monastery is never rebuilt on the same uh, scale. It has a sort of a small shrine added to it, but it lingers uh, with, a, with really with a skeleton crew all the way up until the 1920s when it undergoes a massive transformation not into a Buddhist monastery, but rather into a memorial for for fallen soldiers of later wars, of the revolutionary wars that are to follow decades later. So Linggu Monastery before the war is one of the three great monasteries of Nanjing. After the war, it doesn't vanish from the map, but it only exists on a much smaller, on a much uh, minimized scale compared to before. A Jiangtian Monastery, which is located in the city of of, uh, Zhenjiang, sort of uh, halfway along the Yangtze River between Shanghai and Nanjing, uh, Jiangtian Monastery after the war is rebuilt very quickly, and it has very capable leadership that's able to uh, uh, rely on the help of friends in high places, rely on the help of uh, viceroys and, and, and governors and that sort of thing to ask for state money 
to help to rebuild this site. And uh, Jiangtian Monastery, within the space of a few decades, is almost completely rebuilt from being burned to the ground. There's one structure, the kind of the pagoda at the back of the site, which isn't rebuilt for a few decades. But otherwise, uh, within a period of about maybe 14, 15 years, it is, it is almost completely rebuilt from the ground up. And in the case of Jiangtian Monastery, their success in rebuilding the structures after being destroyed is thanks to capable leadership, the abbot at the time, uh, uh, was uh, was very charismatic and had strong social connections. And also they were able to get uh, support from the state, uh, uh, Li Hongzhang and Zhang Guofan. They had a sort of a direct line of communication to them to get state funds to help them rebuild uh, their structures afterwards. And in the decades that follow into the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Jiangtian Monastery uh, re- uh, retains its space as a well-known center for training monks, it's very highly regarded. If you have an ordination certificate from Jiangtian Monastery, for example, you're taken very seriously. It shows that you are able to take the, har- the sometimes harsh and very rigorous training uh, that they had that they had there. So, really, the the purpose of me looking at these two cases is to show that it's not every it's um, it's it's not every time that a, a prominent or well-known Buddhist monastery is destroyed, it's not necessarily that it will be reconstructed again. Some of these places uh, will not be, will, not, will never return to their, their, uh, their position of, of former glory, of their, their position of former influence. But in some cases, given the right leadership and given the right conditions, as in the case of Jiangtian Monastery, uh, it can happen with a great deal of effort and a little bit of luck as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Oh, it's very fascinating reading the the case studies of these two monasteries and their very different fates, right? Like you described. Um, and chapter two of your book continues into um, the late Qing period through the early Republican years and up to the new nationalist government in Nanjing in the early 20th century. Um, in this period of reform or evolution, um, many of our listeners uh, might be um, familiar with this history that Buddhism in China was under a lot of crisis. And, and you argue that Buddhist monasteries in this period were forced to navigate a shifting political scene of warlord coalitions and ideological campaigns. Um, so how did Buddhist reconstructions of monasteries right, also strategically position themselves in these shifting terrains? So the second chapter looks at the period between about 1898 and 1928. And it begins in 1898 because that's the period of the Hundred Days of Reform, this uh, kind of short-lived, uh, ultimately uh, abor- uh, aborted attempt to reconstruct the the core of Chinese society and culture to try to strengthen it and modernize it, uh, it's not. It, it ends up being quashed, and a lot of its uh, proponents ended up being executed or have to flee into exile. But the Qing state, especially after the Boxer Rebellion of 1900 to 1901, has to start to introduce reforms. Uh, I think the the leadership of the state sees that it's no longer possible to go on with business as usual. And so many of the suggestions during that were kind of proposed during the periods of the Hundred Days of Reform, they do end up being enacted in the first decade of the, of the 20th century. And one of the major um, uh, parts of this platform, of the reform platform at the time, is to try to promote education. 
and they want to promote modern education, not memorizing classical texts and taking exams, but rather a modern education system that would be very familiar to us today. Primary, secondary, tertiary education, foreign languages, sciences, uh, literature, things like that. That's what they wanted to create. But they had a problem in that it's very expensive to create an entire education system from the ground up. So what they wanted to do was seize religious properties, temples and monasteries and, and other religious institutions, and force them to convert into schools. And this slogan was first used in 1898. It never really caught on, but over the next few decades, it would keep re-emerging and it would be uh, local officials and especially kind of um, uh, industrious and enthusiastic local officials who would use this slogan as part of the reasoning for actually seizing religious properties kicking out the religious professionals who were there and changing them into local schools, primary, secondary, um, or otherwise. And during this period, the last decade of the Qing and the first few decades of the Republic, there is no real strong central rule in China between 1916 and 1928. You could find yourself under the rule of a local warlord whose day-to-day activities usually involve going to war with, an, with a neighboring warlord, right, trying to, trying to gain territory, uh, trying to gain advantage. Um, and when they are interested or when they do intervene in local education, um, they basically have free reign as to what they want to do. They're, they're not bound by the constitution, the provisional constitution of, uh, of 1912 or 1913. They're really only bound by their force of arms. So this is a very chaotic period for Buddhist monasteries and other religious institutions in China. They, could n- they had no uh, centralized legal authority to whom they could ask or to whom they could appeal for protection. Um, what they could do, however, is they could do things like publish periodicals, magazines, magazines, and newspapers, for example, to try to argue in print their right to exist and their right to property and their right to protections of these property as well. So in, the, in some of the case studies that I, I examine that I explore in chapter two, we see the beginnings of an ideological war between the, for example, the uh, supporters of the old Confucian education system against monasteries, against a newly reconstructed monastery. And as a result of this, the monastery um, incorporates into the reconstructed buildings new things that had not existed before. And in the one case that I look at, specifically, it's a primary school and a scriptural press. So even though Buddhist monasteries had always been involved in education and printing, just it would have been monastic education and scriptural printing. Now, at, uh, during this last decade of the Qing dynasty and the first few decades of, of the Republic, what they're getting into is much broader publishing, scriptural publishing and other forms of publishing, as well as public education. So teaching primary school students from the locality of using the new textbooks of the, new, of the, of the new, newly formed educational systems uh, as well. So chapter two really looks at, it looks at a time of revolution of uncertainty. It looks at a time of crisis when there is no strong state, there is no strong emperor, there is no strong president uh, to whom leaders of Buddhist monasteries can turn. They have to negotiate a rapidly changing terrain of, uh, of local officials who might be friendly to religion, who might be hostile to religion. But in the back of it, there's always this notion, this kind of slogan of, of using religious properties and forcing them to turn into schools. And thus, as we see reconstructed monasteries during this time, as we see them being uh, rebuilt and revitalized, they have to uh, fight, kind of fight a defensive action, or at least um, give some thought to strategy as to how to protect themselves um, within this, uh, within the shifting ideological climate. Interesting. Um, And in chapter three, attention is now shifted to the reconstruction of Buddhist sites 
um, in the Nanjing decade and in the period of the si- Second Sino-Japanese War, um, here you show that a great deal of effort was actually put into protecting Buddhist sites amidst the war as enduring concrete symbols of Chinese civilization. Um, so what kind of efforts were these and, and why were Buddhist sites chosen as symbols to represent the Chinese civilization during this period? So the third chapter looks at the period um, roughly between 1928 and, uh, and 1949. Um, even at the beginning of the Nanjing decade, this is not a, really a period of peace and prosperity and unity. It's only a few years into the period of uh, after the capital was established in Nanjing that the Japanese invade northeastern China. They set up the puppet state of Manchukuo. And really, it's everybody knows it's only a matter of time before there's a larger uh, full-scale war between Japan and China. So this is the background. This is historical context to this period. And I was surprised to see that in the years leading up to the the outbreak of full-scale war in 1937, and even during wartime, the Nationalist Party is still still, uh, uh, indirectly supporting the protection and reconstruction of very historically important uh, Buddhist sites. And one of these sites is Xinjiang Monastery, just outside of the city of Xi'an, uh, Xi'an in northwestern China was built up as a kind of a second wartime capital. Uh, Chongqing in western China was the main, uh, was the most important wartime capital, but Xi'an was kind of a secondary wartime capital as well. Uh, it was never lost to Japanese invasion. The Japanese advanced to, I think, about 100 kilometers away, but they were never able to take Xi'an, the city itself. Um, but in the years leading up to the war, the local officials and, and officials in the central government, they already had a plan in place to turn Xi'an into a local bastion, into a local fortress against the expected uh, invasion. And one of the things that they got into in rebuilding Xi'an was rebuilding monasteries both within the city center itself and nearby, sort of in the suburbs around Xi'an. So we see highly placed uh, nationalist of- officials in the early 30s and even into the, the, the first couple of years of the war as well, visiting Xinjiang Monastery, writing about Xinjiang Monastery, um, do, donating money, per, their personal money, their, their personal wealth to it. But at the same time, everybody knows that they are a high official and they kind of carry with them this, uh, this stamp of authenticity or this stamp of approval as being uh, um, in, insofar as they are a high official in the, in the government as well. And Xinjiang Monastery is important because it is the location of the the stupa. It's the location of this of the stone monument uh, within which is thought to, are thought to be interred the ashes or the, the relics of Xuanzang, this very important Buddhist monk who traveled to South Asia, who uh, collected uh, Buddhist scriptures and brought them back to China. And flanking this stupa are are two additional stupas for his two main disciples as well. So it's a place of history. It's a place that links China. To it, uh, to its former, to its past, um, and importantly, it's a place that symbolically links China to South Asia as well. And during the years leading up to the outbreak of war with Japan, the Nationalist Party was very intensely trying to get as much uh, diplomatic support as they could from states in South Asia, from uh, communities in British-ruled India, even before they had full autonomy, even before they had the ability to have kind of state-to-state relations. They wanted to drum up as much support as possible for China against Japan in the face of the war that they knew uh, was eventually going to come. So the nationalists uh, sent envoys to South Asia. They tried to make a big deal about the historical ties between China and South Asia. And of course, of course, Xuanzang is a perfect character or a perfect kind of figurehead for, for those historical connections between China 
and South Asia as well. Um, but more broadly, for the nationalists, um, Buddhist sites and other historical sites like old, like tombs uh, and 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 historical buildings and that sort of thing, these were concrete symbols of Chinese civilization. And if they could show to the world that the nationalists were in control of them, that the nationalists were protecting them, that they were reasonable and that they were, were uh, responsible uh, caretakers of Chinese civilization, then the hope was that the Japanese would be seen as destroyers because they were the ones who were undertaking an aggressive war, who were bringing war into China that was likely going to destroy a lot of historical monuments um, indirectly and, and just and just through, uh, through happenstance, through these places being caught in the front lines. Um, Buddhist sites were kind of concrete symbols of Chinese civilization that all of a sudden it became very important to, to protect. Now, the Nationalist Party weren't all that concerned or interested in what was going on religiously at the site. If there were some monks there, then great, they can do you know pretty much what they like. What was important and valuable to them was the history of the site, right? The, the actual stones and structures and other things that had been there in the past and how they symbolized a connection between the present day conflict and China's uh, civilizational past as well. It's very interesting. Um, yet the symbolic value of, of the Buddhist sites, right? And, and I guess uh, reinforcing them through re- reconstruction is, is really a big theme um, in this chapter and also in the chapter to come in chapter four, uh, which focuses on reconstructions of Buddhist monasteries in the first 17 years of the People's Republic of China um, after 1949. And this chapter argues that Buddhist monasteries were no uh, were now stages for cultural diplomacy with other Asian nations, which can be seen as part of the global Cold War, great game for influence, prestige, and establishing the international legitimacy of the new state. This is quoting your original sentence. Um, how are monastery reconstructions carried out in this period, and how are they different from previous periods? So as you pointed out, the shift in value, the shift in perceived value of Buddhist monasteries that had already taken place during the Nanjing decade and during the period of the Second World War is only really intensified after 1949. So the the context, historical context of the period between 1949 and 1966, it can sometimes be very easy to look at the PRC um, and assume that anything that's going on that's religious only really cropped up or only really re- emerged after, 19, after the late 1970s. Uh, one could assume that what we have is we have communist rule and then we have the Cultural Revolution. When that fails and when Deng Xiaoping is, is put into a position of, uh, of not being the, the, the actual leader of the party, but essentially being the ideological leader of the party, when Deng Xiaoping starts to move the country toward reform and opening up, only then do we see these age-old religious communities kind of reemerge. People are allowed to do religious things again. And you can draw a straight line between the religious renewal of the early 1980s right up until the present day. But it can be very easy to forget that during this short window of time between 1949 and 1966, there was actually a fair bit of religious activity that was going on in China. It was, it was a period when the state, when the entire country was being reconstructed, the communist leadership knew that they couldn't simply sweep away religion uh, immediately. Uh, they didn't yet have the kind of the, the, the power to do so, even if they wanted to do so. So at least for the time being, they had to regulate religion as best they could. They set up the, um, in, the, the uh, in the 1950s, they set up the patriotic associations, the national associations for the different religious traditions to make sure that religious followers and professionals and others are going to toe the party line. They're not going to try to 
um, formulate a separate source of political or social power that's separate from the party, that they will stay within the realms of religious regulation. But of course, they're not stamped out or they're not destroyed. That kind of directly anti-religious destruction, defrocking of, of, of religious professionals uh, en masse really only happens in up from the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution. So during this period, um, religions, including Buddhism, in the PRC are very important. And one of the reasons why they're important is that the PRC is trying to build diplomatic links with other countries around the world. And they're trying to fight for recognition of the PRC as the, the legitimate China, of course, during a period when most countries in the world still recognized the Republic of China, now having you know retreated to the island of Taiwan and a few offshore islands as well. So there's a handful of countries, mostly communist countries, who recognize uh, the PRC very early on. But there's a number of other nations in South and Southeast Asia, many of which have just gained their independence or gained their autonomy, former colonial possessions. And these are kind of uh, potential friends and allies in the new context of the Cold War. And luckily, China has something that connects them to South Asia and Southeast Asia that the USSR does not really have and America does not have, very clearly does not have. And that's the historical connections of Buddhism. So the PRC sends relics, they send cultural delegations, they invite cultural delegations into the PRC from places like Sri Lanka, from India, from Burma, from Cambodia, from Vietnam, trying to do non-state level um, unofficial diplomacy, but very important cultural diplomacy during an era before normalization of relations between the PRC and these other places. So a lot of the Buddhist monasteries in the PRC that are reconstructed during this period, that are fixed up, that are repaired, that are brought back from a state of ruin or decay into, into a state of being in good order, a lot of these places are intended to be stages for cultural diplomacy. Uh, visiting friends are brought there. They're shown around. They're the, uh, intended to form the backdrop of creating friendly relations with other South Asian states. Even if they're not majority Buddhist, they still understand that Buddhism is part of their cultural history, right? I mean, India has not been majority Buddhist for a very long time, but of course, it is the homeland of Buddhism, and it understands Buddhism to be part of its cultural mosaic. Uh, the leaders of India at the time in the 1950s weren't all that enthusiastic about religion per se, but they too understood that it was part of India's cultural history, part of China's cultural history, and it was something that connected the two. So the the uh, the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, um, newly uh, newly the, the leaders of uh, of uh, of this newly created state, People's Republic of China, invest hundreds of thousands of renminbi into rebuilding historic Buddhist sites. In the country, they bring cultural delegations and visitors from elsewhere there. This is part of cultural diplomacy. This is part of trying to make friends um, across the world during a time when they don't necessarily have formalized, normalized diplomatic relations um, with any of these with any of these places. Thank you. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, but I guess I think the, the, the question kind of remains, and what about the religious communities themselves, right, in these uh, reconstructions, uh, mostly funded um, and promoted um, by different um, kinds of governments? Um, and I think we can go to the conclusion of your book. Um, and it, it kind of becomes really clear that the title of your book uh, suggests that the building of Buddhist revival in modern China was done actually in part through the reconstruction of Buddhist monasteries. And you make the point in the conclusion that 
uh, quotes, while Buddhist monastery reconstruction in China operates under the guise of a return to the past, it is in fact a confident, energetic step into the future, unquote. Um, however, you also point out uh, in the same conclusion that in recent cases of reconstruction, this energetic step often resulted in the reconstruction of bones and stones, uh, borrowing Gregory Chopin's words, and not the rebirth of the religious communities themselves. Um, so what does this mean for the Buddhist uh, communities in modern China and the future of this tradition? So my, obviously the title of the book, uh, Building the Buddhist Revival, does allude to the fact that I one of the big arguments I want the book to make is that no matter what the revival was and no matter what direction it was taking Buddhism, reconstructing monasteries was an important part of it. Um, we could not have the types of innovations, the types of energetic reimaginings uh, that we had of Buddhist religious traditions in modern China without the monasteries, without these uh, extremely important physical spaces for the doing of religion, without having them be reconstructed from all the various damages and destructions that they, that they had suffered during previous times. Um, but at the same time, I want to make the argument that reconstruction is never simply a return to the past. It's never simply a rebuilding of the status quo ante. That when you have a return, when you have a, a reconstruction, there is always something new that's introduced in some way. And in fact, my understanding of the long-term sort of historical life cycle of monasteries and other institutions like this is that it's this key period of reconstruction. It's kind of a window that allows change and innovation to take place because otherwise these institutions tend to be very conservative, very resistant to change. They do things in the way that they have been done for generations before. If there's, if there's no good reason to change, then it's very unlikely that that change will take place. But if there is some sort of a mass disaster where buildings are destroyed, where the place is leveled, where the religious community has been dispersed and needs to be reformed, this is an opportunity, this is a chance to start to introduce changes, whereas otherwise it might not be possible. So that's why I write that um, the, the rhetoric around reconstructions is that we are returning to the past, we're rebuilding and restoring the, the, the splendor of this ancient monastery. Um, the official rhetoric and the official records aren't necessarily going to be talk, talking about too much and too much detail about the changes that are happening. But looking at the archival records and at, at the, in the local uh, histories and gazetteers, we can see that changes were in fact um, happening under the surface. One of the big changes, one of the, the longer term trends that I see taking place, um, especially in the 20th century in my book, is the rising value of Buddhist monasteries as locations of cultural history and as concrete links to the cultural past of a nation. But this value is not necessarily dependent on the uh, effectiveness or, or the health of the religious community on the site. So as I said uh, a little while ago, if we look at the period of nationalist rule in the 20s and 30s, they are very interested in Buddhist monasteries as historical sites. They're happy for uh, religious communities, monks and nuns to continue living there, but that's not really what they're really what they're what they're concerned about. They're concerned about the bones and stones of the place and their connection to the past. When we look at the first 17 years of the PRC, of course, they are very uh, uh, unlikely and very, they're very unlikely to allow religious professionals to continue to operate as they had in the past. There's a huge drive in the early 1950s to get religious professionals um, to either rejoin lay life and become productive workers or at least engage in some kind of productive activity while remaining religious professionals at the same time. 
They're not allowed, of course, to, be, to continue to be what they had been in the past, which was essentially landlords um, who collecting rents on lands and properties that had been donated to them by pious uh, lay people generations or, 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 or centuries before. So a lot of the sites that are rebuilt in the, during the first period of the PRC, um, some of them, after they are rebuilt, do not really have a religious community on site. Uh, there's a few places in central Xi'an that are net nowadays museums. They're not functioning monasteries anymore. They don't have a religious community on site. They are totally under the control of um, previously the Religious, uh, religious affair, Affairs Bureau, or uh, nowadays, at least in, under some kind of government um, a bureau or office, uh, oftentimes tourism or history or cultural heritage that is looking after this place. So uh, Gregory Chopin has this famous volume, uh, Bone Stones and Buddhist Monks. And I kind of play on this. Uh, anybody in Buddhist studies would, would be very familiar with this formulation. I kind of play on this this formulation to say that the direction we see things going into the um, into the second half of the 20th century is that when a Buddhist monastery is rebuilt, the bones are there, right? The relics and the, the, the connections to its past, the stones are there, the structure is rebuilt and, and made to look very nice, but it's the Buddhist monks, it's the monastics, it's the living heart of the site that oftentimes is left out and is not rebuilt. And in all of the cases, all of the previous cases that I look at in the first part of the book, when a monastery is reconstructed, it's not just the material elements, it's the human elements that have to be built be rebuilt as well. You need that religious community on site or else all it is is a very pretty building in a very beautiful part of the world surrounded by nature. It doesn't have that that dynamic, active religious heart, that numinous power at the center. So one of the, one of the big um, changes, one of the big developments that I see over the period of study of this book is this move towards uh, what one might call the museific- museumification of mm-hmm. Buddhist monastery sites taking out the religious professionals who are annoying, who could complain, who might have their own ideas about how the place might be run. You get rid of them and all you're left with is the museum. And museums are rather more easy for state powers. to con- You can control the narrative of the place. You can insert and install your own explanations. You can control access to it. You can control opening and closing times. Uh, you don't have to close it for festivals. There's all kinds of sort of uh, annoying uh, annoying mishaps and annoyances that are avoided if you can remove the the religious the the living heart um, of of these of these places. Mm. Well, thank you um, for sharing that. Unfortunately, that seems to be sort of the direction that a lot of the states are taking. Um, well, finally, we we come to um, at the end of the um, um, podcast interview. Uh, before we log off, uh, we have the final question traditional for the New Books Network um, podcast. So what are you working on now that you can share with us? So I'm working on a very exciting project. It's called the Chinese Religious Text Authority, and it's going to be a digital uh, catalog of Chinese religious texts, Buddhist, Taoist, and otherwise, that have been produced in China up until 1949. So it's a digital humanities project. It's uh, bringing together uh, a small group of people who are all working on Chinese religion, um, uh, people who are working in medieval China and early modern China, as well as people like myself who, who work on modern China. And uh, my part of this is going to be working on cataloging Buddhist and other religious texts from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And uh, I'm going to try to use this new catalog, digital catalog work, as the kind of the basis for working on a new project that's going to be discussing uh, uh, periodicals, Buddhist periodicals, uh, between 1912 and the 1950s. So in a way, it's a return to one aspect of my uh, PhD dissertation work after uh, after this kind of brief detour 
into the world of sacred spaces, architectural history, and things like that. Oh, very interesting. Definitely. I, th- I think our, our listeners will be looking forward to that too. And uh, more of your uh, wonderful work in the future. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I had a really great time reading your book. Oh, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Um, until we speak again. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>